So this is, uh, this is our, our final session, and it's one that is going to gain the insights of a really extraordinary set of uh, legal practitioners who've been, as I indicated earlier, grappling each of them with these issues, not just uh, for years, but in, I think, every case, uh, at least a couple of decades. And um, to get us going, uh, I'm going to just suggest that we go, maybe, Ted, if you would start and have everyone just briefly introduce themselves, give a sense of the arc of your career and the sorts of issues that you've dealt with with fraud just in a minute or so. My background is uh, 32 years as an in-house lawyer at Kraft Foods, where I had uh, the opportunity to experience some interesting frauds, and I'll talk about what one of them in a minute, but um, currently I'm a partner in the firm of Sharf Banks Marmor, um, our practice, my practice is mostly corporate compliance and antitrust. Uh, I'm an associate adjunct professor at Loyola Law School uh, where I teach corporate compliance and I work for the FTC and the Competition Bureau of Canada as a compliance monitor. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Stephen Lee and I used to be an assistant U.S. attorney here in the Northern District of Illinois. I was there for about 11 years. And during that time, I did a lot of healthcare fraud prosecutions. And what got me thinking a lot was realizing I kept on seeing the same issues coming up time and time again. And so I ended up working a lot with people on Medicare to try to look at the problem more practically. I kept explaining, you're never going to prosecute your way out of this problem. You've got to think about different ways. And so that was kind of, I think, uh, one of the big ways. I've, and I thought a lot about these issues and happy to talk with you about them here. So I am Lisa Madigan. I am a partner at Kirkland Ellis, where I've been for the last three years. Prior to that, I spent 20 years in Illinois state government, where I served for 16 years as the Illinois Attorney General. And like Stephen just said, saw plenty uh, of fraud repeatedly uh, and really spent an enormous amount of time working with my consumer protection division, uh, not just on healthcare fraud, but really on financial fraud and going after the people who were really at the heart of the financial crisis. So I'm excited to uh, spend some time reflecting on that and talking about how we can do better in terms of policy and enforcement and education. Thanks, Mark. I'm Chuck Smith. I head the litigation and enforcement practice at Skadden in Chicago. Um, I do a mix of regulatory enforcement, SEC enforcement, things like uh, Illinois AG and other state AGs um, when my clients have been alleged to commit fraud. None of my clients have committed fraud, of course. Um, and I did represent a large financial institution in a $16 billion settlement out of the financial crisis of alleged claims that Lisa was one of the plaintiff's lawyers on. Um, but uh, seriously, uh, do probably, I, you know, I'm the defense side. Um, and so I have views that may differ from some folks on, on this. Lisa's now the defense side, so we've welcomed her to the fold. Um, but it's great to be here. And I'm Kevin Anderson. I'm the director of the Consumer Protection Division in the North Carolina Attorney General's Office. I've been in the office for 23 years working on fraud-related matters, some really interesting cases over the years, including uh, some of the ones you've heard about today. I was heavily involved in the $26 billion uh, opioid settlement that the states did, uh, uh, involved in the national mortgage settlement, the VW emissions case, and then also a number of North Carolina-specific fraud cases, you know, door-to-door -door 
repair fraud cases too. So I do think it's important to remember that fraud occurs on both kind of the localized level, but also these very big nationwide cases as well. Before uh, my time in the Consumer Protection Division, I did a big law firm stint at Arnold Porter, stint on the House and the Judiciary Committee, but have spent the bulk of my career doing uh, consumer fraud related work. I'm Michelle Weinberg. I'm an, a supervisory attorney at Legal Aid Chicago, where I've been for 21 years representing mostly senior citizens in all manner of consumer fraud and uh, collection harassment and, and all, all kinds of cases. I started my career with a class action firm doing plaintiff's class action work um, in the mortgage escrow cases and car dealer um, financing um, under disclosure cases. Um, but for the last 21 years, I've been representing individuals in um, not billion dollar cases. <laughs> Thanks so much. So just an incredible array of perspectives to, to dig into the, the topics at hand. So if, if, if I think about the previous presentations today, including Judge Rakoff's, there's a pretty strong consensus that uh, the incidence of economic deception in the United States is not going down, that it's either uh, remaining steady or, in fact, becoming more problematic. Um, does that accord with what you all see? I, I'm just curious, and of course, you have, might have a lens on this from a particular market or a particular jurisdiction. Uh, but I, I, just to get, us all, uh, get the conversation going, just be curious to hear from uh, at least a few of you whether that makes sense or not and why. So I think it probably makes some sense in this regard. Um, and, and we talked about this a little bit earlier today, various speakers did. Um, right, so if you want to look back at what Professor Cadden said, right, 16th century, 18th century, it's really face-to-face -face when the fraud might be taking place. And obviously, as communications improved, you ended up in a situation where it wasn't just face-to-face, -face. wasn't just somebody coming to your door, uh, but it's somebody sending you mail, it's somebody calling you a telemarketer on the phone. And now with the internet, uh, it really became rampant. So in that regard, yes, we're probably seeing a higher volume of fraudulent scams that are being perpetrated against people. And so if you know somebody has the means of sending out millions upon millions of emails, even if some you know minuscule percentage of individuals responds and gives somebody you know their bank account routing number or goes and you know gets gift cards and you know gives them the information or whatever they end up doing to lose their money. Um, in that regard, yes, we're seeing more of it. Um, and some of those frauds you might consider those smaller individual frauds, but certainly, you know, as we sit here and we talk about, you know, the you know, savings and loan crisis and then the mortgage foreclosure crisis, I mean, yes, we are continuing to see a very high volume of fraud. I think for all of us, because we're in the middle of it, we may not recognize um, if it's going up because it's kind of our bread and butter, mm -hmm. but it's 100% constant, and, and I see it taking place in kind of different forms. You know, one thing I think about sometimes about how widespread fraud has become is, you know, we do jury trials. You know, one of the questions you ask all potential jurors is, have you been a victim of crime? And I remember thinking 15, 20 years ago, people could probably, most of them could probably legitimately say yes, I have no, or no, I've not been a victim of a crime. But I think just about probably every single in this pers person in this room has probably been the victim of some credit card scam or had their credit card stolen, so they've had to get a new credit card. 
And actually, it's become so commonplace that I think people don't even realize you are the victim of a crime, of a fraud. And it's kind of fascinating just how widespread it's become because of some of the things of scale that have come about. Um, I guess the one thing that's kind of interesting, I thought, though, is when you ask, thinking about that question, is you, if you actually look at the DOJ statistics about fraud cases, it actually has gone down. Um, when you look back compared to like 10, 20 years ago, the number of defendants charged per year. I think that goes not to the a sudden drop in fraud, but I think that goes to some of the points that Judge Rakoff was talking about in terms of resources and allocation. And, and I have some numbers, at least complaint numbers, from our office that maybe I can add to the mix, which are we, the, la the last I saw, we received 30,000 written complaints, uh, consumer-related complaints in North Carolina, which to put that in perspective, uh, just a few years ago, uh, 10,000, we were getting 10,000, and we thought that was an enormous number, and that was a big jump from, like, we used to think 5,000 was a large number. So now we're getting 30,000, which is three times the number we, we got just a few years ago. Now, those numbers may not tell the entire story because we also make it a lot easier for people to complain online. These days, a lot of the scams are online. People are more used to, you know, filing things online and everything. And I agree with what was said earlier in the session about how because fraud due to its nature is deceptive, the numbers only show you part of the picture and a really effective piece of fraud isn't gonna lend itself to a whole lot of complaint numbers. But for what it's worth, our complaint numbers show a, a large rise in the complaints we're getting. Yeah, look, all of us, I mean, I Netflix, in quotes, just sent me a text while Judge Rakoff was speaking, <laughs> asking me to click through and to enter my credit card information to update my credit card. Now, it was an improper grammar, and it clearly wasn't Netflix, and I didn't click through, but I bet that's happened to all of us in the last 48 hours in some variation on that theme, right? And that is, that's a classic fraud, and there are a lot of people who get fooled by it because it's getting more and more sophisticated. So there's that individual category in the bucket of the world that Lisa does now and that I have done for 35 years, I actually don't have the sense that it is increasing kind of corporate, large-scale corporate fraud. But I do think there are dynamics where, for example, we are now in a rising inflationary environment. We are in an environment where there are other pushes on the economy, right? I always think of the water level <laughs> of the economy, and when that water level recedes, as it did in 2009, for example, due to the financial crisis, when the water level recedes, a lot of the scams are exposed. And so you have this feeling that, oh my God, there's so much fraud. That fraud was, Bernie Madoff was going on for years, right? And it wasn't uncovered. And you had a spate of, oh, there are all these Ponzi schemes. You know, Ed sent me an email about the history of Ponzi schemes before Charles Ponzi. They've been around forever. But it, the, the tides ebb and flow of the economic factors that allow fraud to remain undetected. What we see over the time as securities litigators and as SEC defense practitioners is the enforcement ebbs and flows kind of with that tide, right? The financial crisis led to a flood of private securities litigation that kept us all busy and well-fed for, you know, between five and seven years. That has receded other things in the technology sector and other sectors have started to pull in. 
and to ramp those cases back up. But um, there will be more years like that. I just don't think there's more fraud. I think that there's there's more individual fraud, but I think the corporate fraud, it's always there. And, and the question is, you know, when it's going to come to the surface and how much of it comes to the surface and this some's never detected. Yeah, I, I would say I'm not sure that there's more fraud than ever any more than like there's a perception that that we live in a more violent society than we ever have. And I don't I think human beings have always been uh, deceptive and, you know, basically liars when it advantages them. Um, but the tools um, like Lisa pointed out that, you know, that the tools exist to commit fraud on a wider scale. Um, and I also would agree that, you know, kind of ebb and flow, um, you know, and market force, I think market forces more than regulation have a tendency to um, increase or decrease, you know, whatever kind of fraud is going on. Um, for example, you know, before the crash, you know, there was all the, uh, lots and lots, I did lots of home, home repair fraud cases. And the reason home repair fraud was, and home repair is, Still rampant, rampant fraud, um, but on on the scale that we saw it, um, where um, like one defendant, a guy named Mark Diamond, um, was indicted for victimizing over 180 elderly homeowners, more than 10 million dollars, uh, which on a giant corporate scale might not be a lot, but this was literally one guy. Um, uh, because of the easy money, because of the easy loans um, during the bubble. Um, that fraud was enabled um, by by the market, um, and then when it crashed and the property values went down, a lot of that fraud went away because the crooks couldn't tap that easy money. Um, and now it's more uh, what I see, at least in my practice, is public adjusters who get their hands on insurance money. It's the same kind of scam where the home repair contractor gets a hundred thousand or a couple hundred thousand dollars, and you know maybe fixes a bathroom and that's it, and walks away with the money. Um, so it's, it's more like the, the types of fraud change depending on where the, where, where the opportunities lie. Yeah, so it's, mm -hmm. right, so before the crash, right, it's equity stripping. And then afterwards, it was debt settlement scams, exactly. mortgage yep. modification right. scams. Right. So it's constant, it's yeah. just where's the opportunity. Right, mortgage rescue, um, or, and then contract for deed when, when People can't, couldn't get mortgages so easily. Right, and sometimes it's the same bad actors. I had a neighbor when I was a kid, and through my adult life, I followed him since Google has existed because he went to prison when I was a kid for selling stock in a company that didn't exist. And over time, he's just gone to whatever the scandal of the day is and spent half of his adult life in prison. And, and during the mortgage crisis, sure enough, he was caught in a mortgage scam and, and is now in prison in Minnesota. And so I feel like, there are there are toxic actors in in the system who are truly you know bad fraudster type actors and then as professor macy and i were talking about at uh, lunch i think there's also a sense that i as a defense lawyer have that whenever there's a problem a big social problem people want to point to fraud. They want to find a bad guy. They want to, you know, and so there are some situations that were discussed today that I probably have a slightly different perspective on than others that I don't necessarily believe that everything was fraud, that people label as fraud. But you see it in every, in economic fraud, you see it in, you know, I lost the election, so it must be fraud, right? And um, all of that, I think, is people looking for an explanation that, is about some bad actor who caused whatever they've You know, and I think the, the, the election 
fraud allegation, uh, it w which is, you know, I will assume is a false fraud allegation, sort of undermines the, the trust in society and that loss of trust in general contributes to, you know, the, the lack of reliance, lack of confidence in uh, elected officials and, and enforcement and the rule of law. So that, that's one factor I think is sort of new because I, I, I can't recall something like that happening before where trying to undo an uh, institution of government. Um, so from a political side, I think that's hurt us. But from a business side, yes, it's cyclical. Things happen differently. Um, you know, one of, one of the reasons that the sentencing guidelines have a provision in there about not hiring people who you should know are bad guys uh, was, I think, because of a home repair guy who did sort of the serial um, home repair frauds. And he'd, be, he'd go from company to company because they'd want to hire someone with expertise in committing those frauds. So, you know, yeah, we recognize that that's a bad thing. Uh, but in terms of business, I think one of the things that has contributed to fraud is the willingness of the company to reduce the size of their workforce, to, to reduce headcount, to save money. And so what they do is they get rid of control people. And, and if anyone had an instinct or an inclination to commit fraud in a company, all of a sudden the, the watchdogs are, are gone or are severely reduced. And they say, yeah, let's give it a try. So, so when I see a fraud example, I'm always thinking of, could it have been controlled? You know, what, what was the cause? Yes, there are sociopathic people, and you know, that's not something we can change now. But there are other things that can be done in a company, like a lot of fraud happens because uh, employees steal stuff because they or a relative has a drug habit or got involved in this loss. So companies can make arrangements with a, an employee uh, assistance program or even a credit union for loans. I mean, there are ways to address those problems. Um, you know, other things are cultural. Uh, people commit fraud because they're mad. They're angry at management who they think is getting paid too much. So there's a whole list of reasons why people do bad things. And I think uh, from my perspective in dealing with companies, you know, you want to think about each one, control what you can, um, and and don't never make it easy for for the bad guys to, uh, to do stuff. So, so if one looks at contexts in which some significant government action occurs in order to try and curb fraud, whether that's an enforcement campaign or whether it's a new administrative regulatory strategy or new legislation, almost always at least in my reading of the historical record, there's a widespread, uh, if not complete consensus, that fraud has become a big problem in that area, that it, it's corroding trust and confidence, that in order to shore up the markets, you have to do something about that problem. And this has been a, the, the connection between these two things has been part of what we've been talking about all day. Um, if, we, if we stipulate that fraud is either recurring in a, in a more or less constant fashion or perhaps going up in some in some contexts, especially when enforcement resources perhaps are, are not there in the same way. Uh, do you see in, in your words a discernible impact on, on trust in institutions? I, another thing like fraud, which is actually pretty hard to measure. We, we, don't, we, we have public opinion surveys, and that's certainly one measure. I don't know if it's, the, if it's absolutely the best one. Do you see an impact on, on trust? 
Probably. <laughs> I mean, probably, right? I mean, your examples in terms of like increased enforcement or policy changes, right? So Sarbanes-Oxley, Dodd-Frank, I mean, all of those are in reaction to real significant fraud taking place and people recognizing that unless we have uh, the right tools, the right laws, the right enforcement, we're going to see more of it and we, you know, we just don't trust that simple enforcement action and, you know, some criminal penalty to change the system. Mm. So we need, because we don't trust otherwise, to do something. So I, I would say yes. I mean, clearly, a diminishment in trust. And then, you know, as we've been talking about with the political system, you kind of undermine everything. People start to question um, you know, whether it's the election or it's the company or it's the media, right? What, what I'm hearing can't be trusted. Mm. Um, we start to destabilize, and I think that's the environment that we find ourselves in right now in this country. Yeah, I, I agree, and I mean, I think sometimes it just seems to me, from my perspective, that, you know, prosecution and regulation is so often too little too late, so it doesn't restore trust. You know, even when the government starts doing something and it's exposed, I think that makes people maybe trust even less. Mm -hmm. so, it's reactive to the last problem. It's often not right, anticipating right. the next problem. Um, but it, yeah, go ahead. Well, just building up what Ted was saying earlier about bad actors and about the, the effects of crimes. One thing I've noticed, like you know, interviewing multiple defendants over time, is I've seen there are, there are people who committed massive frauds who didn't start off trying to do that, right? I've seen a lot of people kind of fall into becoming massive fraudsters. And mm. part of that, I think some of the justifications that they've given me sometimes, and I think I've actually credited them, well, I see all these other people getting away with so much worse. So if these people are all doing all this, then I have to too. I mean, we were talking a little bit about varsity blues earlier. I mean, when you look back at the recordings, a lot of the parents, the way that a lot of parents kind of agree to go along with that is because they think, Everyone else is cheating on so much bigger scale than you, so this is it's okay for you to cheat to catch up to everyone else. Yeah, and that was certainly part of the violation culture at Enron, ADM, other other companies where everyone said, "Yeah, everyone's doing it. This is this is okay." And then um, I think in uh, in ADM they saw that someone got caught and got slap on the wrist, and so the message was sent, "Yeah." Yeah, you really shouldn't do it, but no big deal. And, and that culture, and Judge Rakoff mentioned that, that has a big thing, big to do in, in a company with how they treat fraud, how employees treat are treated, how they trust the company, what is the company. So, so that's part of it, and I would say it's still a work in progress for a lot of companies. Some, some companies do it right, um, unfortunately fewer than, than should. Um, to me, it's, it's a matter of not paying sufficient attention because in my experience uh, a lot of companies don't believe it's going to happen to them the, you know what I've heard from some companies is oh we only hire good people you know that's not going to happen you know what I'm saying you really need to have a program you know you should have a compliance officer you know it's something and then there's a disaster and they get religion and so all of a sudden they you know big department created and all that and it's it's partially too late I mean, it's never a bad idea. So, you know, one of my theories is um, it's partially the fault of business schools that don't teach the importance of these kind of ethics and controls as part of the toolkit of a manager. 
you know, the, the thing is bottom line, maximize profits, but they're not taught how, how he should invest in the company so that this will be a sustainable uh, method of doing it. Uh, it's, and, and let me mention something to, to law students here, which I think is of particular importance. In every state, there are, are ethical rules for lawyers. And um, a lot of lawyers sort of buzz through them if you take a legal ethics course, but should focus on a couple of things. Um, rule 2.1 in the model rule says, you're supposed to use your professional judgment to um, guide your client and not just rely on legal principles, but also moral, ethical, social, economic. In other words, be a counselor, guide your clients to do the right thing. And then you have rule 3.1, which says, yes, you can, you can be a, an advocate, but you shouldn't do something that's frivolous. You have to, have, you have to bring actions that are well-grounded in law or fact. Um, and that's you know, a lot of the debate right now about the uh, post-election uh, litigation of stuff that had no basis in law or fact. But every lawyer has that obligation. Um, the other thing to say in the definitions to the professional rules, uh, like Rule 1.0, it says you, you can infer what happened from, from what you see. You can, in other words, you can't put your head in the sand. You have to be um, you know, a rational individual about the implications of what you see. Also similar language in the federal sentencing guidelines. All of this says that lawyers have a role as gatekeepers. So in a lot of these fraud cases we hear about, I keep asking the question, where were the lawyers? What were they doing when this happened? Um, and uh, we heard it mentioned before of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. Okay, where were her lawyers as she was uh, distributing fraudulent uh, test results for uh, their, their fake machines? Um, interesting, one of their lawyers was David Boys, who uh, has a reputation as a great litigator, but he was using his skills to attack and intimidate any Theranos employee who asked questions about the legitimacy of their testing. And he also uh, represented Harvey Weinstein, did the same thing against reporters, might have challenged it. So what was his role as a gatekeeper? So all I'm saying is I'm imploring all of you to be willing to embrace that role as a gatekeeper of ethical conduct to help guide your clients uh, on the right path. And um, it's tough because you can be fired but that's sort of the price you have to pay. We're in a profession, not, you know, not just a trade. So something to think about as you go forward. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, like two words, and it, it, it applies both to, to lawyers and to corporate executives or anybody in charge. Um, willful blindness, which is equal to fraud. Um, yeah. you, know, if you, can, you know what's going on, and you turn a blind eye to it. You're, uh, as far as right. I'm concerned, you're just as guilty. And since we have a bunch of law students in the room, I'm gonna jump on this. I, I tell all our young lawyers every year, you know, you have two things going for you when you're working in our profession, one of which is your, the reputation for the quality of your work, and the second is your reputation for ethics. And if you lose the second of those, you will never get it back, and your career will be destroyed. Uh, apart from that, you know, it's the right thing to do. It is also 
reputation matters in our profession tremendously. And, and Professor Macy said he doesn't think the reputational harms of, of fraud have affected corporate America. I actually disagree with that. I think at Wells Fargo, it's dramatically changed. Uh, they lost every broker who could leave that brokerage force, left that brokerage force after that sales practices uh, uh, investigation because they couldn't look their clients in the face and answer the questions, right? And so the top brokers all left. Yes, they've still got a brokerage force, but they've rebuilt it from the ground up. And so I think the reputational piece of deterrence and the reputational piece of the consequences of punishment matters and that there are implications for that in terms of one of the things that Judge Rakoff said, which is individuals need to be charged because companies get charged all the time. That's a lot of, a lot of noise in the system. Companies view securities litigation, which I do as a cost of doing business. Um, they view settlement with their primary regulator often as a cost of doing business. But if in if individuals become subject to charging decisions that are correct charging decisions that aren't a witch hunt looking for a scapegoat for a societal problem, then in those circumstances, it can have a massive effect, I think, on deterrent effect on, on conduct. But it has to be the top people. Not like just well, prosecuting the, the low-level, you know. No, that's both, exactly right. It should be the, t the people to whom you can legitimately charge and convict, right? I think in the financial crisis, the DOJ and people like the state of Illinois, right? People looked very hard at senior executives of those companies, and they went, how are we going to charge? We can charge that case. How are we going to win that case? And they found that even cases of some of the most egregious senior corporate level actors, that they were going to have a really hard time winning the case at trial. And they chose, rather than try and lose a case, to um, not to bring it. And well, you we, can, we did, like with Countrywide, we right, did try. Right? Of course. So it was both, you know, we sued the company and we sued Angela Mazzillo. Yep. Ultimately, the court said no. And that's exactly right. And in the but Northern District of Illinois, right. there was a trial last summer, a criminal trial. One of the big investments of the office was in a trial of the management team of a company called Power Solutions. It was, uh, it was a classic accounting fraud of, oh, you're trying to meet your quarterly numbers. Judge Rakoff's point again, right? You're meeting the numbers, so at the end of the quarter, you shift sales in fictitiously into the prior quarter so that you make your numbers. Classic case, easy to prove on the civil side. Everybody was acquitted, and acquitted in a bench trial by a tough federal judge. So, you know, they, these are not easy cases for the government to win. I've defended individuals in cases um, and convinced the government not to go after them sometimes by convincing them that they're not going to win the case. Then, and it, there's so much criticism of people in Lisa Madigan's position and people in the Department of Justice's positions and and. I view a lot of that as really unfair because those folks are trying to prove the best case that they can win and trying to take cases as far up the chain as they can. But the farther up the chain you get, the harder the cases are to win in many of these circumstances. And one, one thing I'll add to that quickly is, I mean, I have some frustration with the criminal side of things. And to be clear, like in the AG's office, the consumer protection I do is civil work. But like, whether it's large corporations and individuals who should be held criminally responsible or even the, the small home repair person. Like one of my main frustrations 
in North Carolina on the local level involves this guy who went around door to door scamming elderly people over and over again. And we brought a suit against him, got an order, got an injunction, had him held in civil contempt numerous times. This guy needed to go to jail. He was a bad guy. This was not nuanced fraud or anything. This was just blatant fraud. And we could not get the criminal folks in our state to, to bring criminal action against this guy. And you know, it's clearly a crime. There's a false uh, you know, taking of property or taking of property with, under false pretenses. Crime should have been easy to prove. Finally, some criminal authority in Maryland put this person in jail, but I was so frustrated with our criminal folks in North Carolina. But you know, they're focused on what they're focused on, whether it's drug cases or, but what he was doing was no different from, in terms of impact, someone breaking into their house and stealing $5,000 from them, because that's what he was doing, basically. Dozens and dozens yeah, of people. over and over again. And you know, and just the, the he should have been in jail, you and know, that, and, and it yeah. took 10 years before he ended up in jail. Yeah. It should have been much earlier. That's very similar to my experiences. I, I've sued about a half a dozen different home repair contractor, mortgage broker um, scammers um, over and over and over again, you know, dozens of clients. Um, and, you know, we always rep would report it to the attorney general's office with all due respect. But, you know, and it would take years. And because they're not going to stop unless some of these guys, um, the only way to stop them is to put them in jail. And, um, you know, I'd have reporters saying, like, well, why, why hasn't he been, you know, prosecuted, you know, criminally? Because I would sue, and then I could, you know, usually settle the cases and get money. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, like, you know, with a little bit of, uh, you know, trouble in mind because I know the only way they can pay back my client is to steal from somebody else because that's the only way they make, they know how to make money. Um, and, you know, about a half a dozen of them have, have gone to prison eventually, but like only after 10 years and, you know, you know, hundreds of victims before, before there's an actual criminal case. Well, I think this kind of goes to like, I think one big thing that, you know, I think it's important to realize when you think about law enforcement, it's, it's trying to accomplish two different things. It's trying to punish people who, who have taken advantage of people, people, the criminals. You're also trying to deter them and other people from doing this and they're very different and putting someone in jail is the most powerful tool that law enforcement has but it's also the most difficult for law enforcement to pull off you got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt you got to prove all these nuances you got to go into what the defendant was thinking when they did these things that can be really tough and that is a big part of the challenge why it's so difficult to prosecute the top level executives because there are these layers separating them from the actual fraud. That's why it's so difficult to get the people that Kevin's talking about uh, sometimes because it's really hard building these cases. Um, that's why I think a big part of it has to be, and what I tried to get Medicare to do more of, is try to think more proactively. What things can you do now to make future prosecutions easier? I thought a lot about, you know, I had this one uh, corporate fraud case where I ended up prosecuting and convicting the company, the top two executives, a few, the compliance officer actually went to jail, um, lots of people end up going to jail. But I always thought that it would have been better for the system and the Medicare if they had just shut the company out of Medicare and prevented them from billing. And so they couldn't have billed and gotten millions of dollars while a lengthy federal investigation took place. Um, so there's a trade-off, right? 
I think, it, you know, you got to think like, well, it's good that those people went to jail to send a message, but it might have been better for them to just be shut out. So it's one, these are, the, these are some of the hard calls that I think, I think are worth thinking about, especially as we look forward, because it is, we're not going to see a massive spike in white-collar criminal prosecutions, at least not to the level to really deal with the whole problem. It's got, the government's got to be thinking a little more intelligently and um, efficiently. So, so Stephen, let me pick up on that with a historical comparison. Um, what you're describing is basically closing the turnstile to trade. You're basically saying, no, you, your behavior is such that the, the, the solution here is to just take away your, in essence, license to use Medicare. That's what the post office did in the late 19th century with the fraud order. And initially, they had the power to do that without notice, without hearing. Summarily, they just decided, we've seen enough. You no longer have access to the mails. You can't receive it. You can't send it. If you're a mail order company, you're done. Well, as you can imagine, this raised some concerns about due process and about uh, the basis on which, you know, who gets to decide that and in what forum. Um, and what then emerged was a set of reforms which created notice and hearing and eventually elongated the procedure sufficiently that it lost its, its effectiveness. Although it also then addressed the concerns of, of I mean, the quite legitimate concerns of, of due process. So uh, what I'd like, just building off this point you just made, is, is to pull us out a little bit to where we might go from where we are. Um, and to think also about this in the context of the concept I introduced at the beginning of the day, which is the regulatory ecosystem. So we have criminal prosecution, we have um, lots of other tools. There's public education, uh, which came up earlier. I'm interested in your views about whether that, uh, what, what the opportunities are for that. Uh, there's just monitoring the complaint mechanism so that you can see what's out there in the, in the marketplace at any given uh, part of, uh, of, of the economy. Um, there's also various forms of administrative regulation, which include disclosure, but also licensing and other modes of, of potentially even shutting businesses down. Uh, of course, in a fly-by-night context, that's also of limited value because you just get the, the same, that, that same, you might say to that, uh, that home repair guy, your business is done, and then he just starts it up again with some different Chuck name. Different name. Yeah. <laughs> or the um, Trump Organization, too, which has been incorporated in New York, right? So, so how, do we, how do we think about developing the most effective uh, combination of policies that also optimize the reputational dynamics that you were describing, Chuck, so that you get the market where possible working with uh, uh, a process of actually pushing those who would be deceptive out of the market as opposed to the Gresham's dynamic that Bill Block talked about earlier where you're crowding out honest behavior. That's an interesting question because when I was the Attorney General, we obviously spent an enormous amount of time doing investigations and enforcement actions largely with the goal um, of making sure that consumers who had been defrauded uh, you know, were provided with relief in some way. But another significant goal that AGs have is to level the playing field, right? And so I take your question as how do we incentivize, let's say in the corporate context, because it's probably easier to do there than with the individual fly-by-night folks, how do we incentivize um, the business community, and maybe partly through ethics education and business schools, but how do we incentivize them to self-police 
so that if you know the reputational damage is such, or you know, if you know that you're the outlier and engaged in some types of fraud, um, you know, there'll be a whistleblower. You know, mm -hmm. it's like the key tam action that uh, that we also see as attorneys general. There are, so there are mechanisms in place to do that, but we have to further um, those in order to really, I think, make a significant difference. Because obviously, as we've been talking about, all of us are under the impression fraud's the same, if not growing significantly. Mm. Well, I have an example. Um, there's, a, there's a particular type of fraud that was very common here in Illinois. Um, and I'm not sure what the current numbers are, but it was very prevalent about 10 years ago. And um, it was interesting how that played out because Medicare decided this was enough and they implemented this one widespread administrative reform, but they impact, they did this new like requirements on every single provider in the state of Illinois. And I remember thinking, like, that is not going to work because the problem was there were all these legitimate providers who now suddenly faced massive administrative burdens, and they just kept complaining. And they were right to complain because now suddenly they had to do all this extra stuff, and they weren't getting paid, and it was causing real problems. And eventually, Congress pushed Medicare and Medicare backed off. And basically, I remember thinking, like, wow, they just – those good providers – just made it a lot easier for the bad providers to keep getting away with their fraud. And so I remember thinking like, okay, now, yeah, because there are property rights or quasi-property rights that you gotta think about, but a better system would have been more targeted to think like, okay, we're gonna implement this thing, we're not gonna do it in everyone in the state, but we're gonna do it for the ones who hit certain red flags. And we're gonna tell you what those red flags are, so if there's an issue, we can correct it. I think it's just the idea is, I think there has to be more, you know, I think the government can do more data. I think it can do more smarter prosecutions. I think it can do more with putting people on notice that, hey, we think there's a problem here and see if they self-correct. Because I do think some people actually would. Um, as this went on, one of the things we ended up doing, and I worked with Medicare on this, is I actually said, like, look, there are certain gatekeepers who are really responsible for this fraud working. Why don't you just call those up those gatekeepers and have a conversation with them and see what's going on. And so they actually did. They actually brought in 30 of these gatekeepers and then we, we blocked out a week. They just brought them in for like an hour each and basically said, hey, we're not saying that you're committed to crime or anything like that, but you know what? There's certain things we see in your data that's kind of weird. And we just want to make sure that you're not doing anything wrong. My understanding is that every single one of those providers quit pretty much the field, pretty much instantly because now they knew, they knew what the real rules were. They knew the government was on to them and looking at them. And they were all really scared that if they kept doing what they had been doing, they were going to get prosecuted because they were going to get prosecuted if they kept doing what they were doing. And that was something where no one had to get charged. No one had to basically buy like lengthy criminal cases that were going to take years to prosecute. But you got to save the FISC a huge amount of money in a relatively short amount of time efficiently. So. I don't know, I just think that's the kind of thing that the government needs to be thinking more about in terms of kind of thinking about certain of these types of crimes. Better early warning systems, more effective uh, uh, capacity to analyze that and then engage with it with a kind of pyramid approach to, you know, reserving the heavy, the heavy hitting for the people who really, really need it. Yeah, I think if, because if they know someone's watching, right. they're less likely to do whatever. Cockroaches run when the light comes on, you know. Well, and I also think an important piece of what you just talked about is, is recognizing the importance of data and 
technology tools and like one of the things we're trying to do in the telemarketing robocall area these days and just briefly some background on that you know a number of years ago we passed do not call laws in all of the states and at the federal level which made it a clear legal violation to call someone who's on the do not call registry and we had a lot of people kind of forget this because over time it became less effective due to technology but in the early years those laws were very effective it was easy to enforce most of the violators were calling from within the United States you could we brought a lot of cases but then over time what happened and Judge Rakoff touched on this a little bit is the calls started coming from overseas which is a practical matter made it a lot more difficult for the states in particular but also the federal authorities to bring cases so um, some of us got together and decided, look, we need to look at the technology here because that's how they're getting around our laws. So we need to talk to the telecom companies and try to get them to do more to monitor their systems. We need to engage at the FCC, figure, get them to enact some rules that require the telecom companies to do more to monitor and put in some standards because some of them might be reluctant to just no, they're like they're like the they're like the mortgage brokers. They like the more calls, the better. I, you know, that's why I was always a skeptic about whether they would do anything. Well, I mean, that's why that's why you have to get the FCC to kind yeah. of make them do some things, right, and change the landscape there too, and let them know that we're looking at you and we're telling you you're going to be on the hook for some of this fraud coming through your system if you're turning a blind eye to it. And so it's kind of having this dialogue trying to bring some enforcement actions against the companies who aren't willing to monitor their network. But it's, it's kind of taking a more holistic approach to the problem, recognizing technology and data. Because you know now we have all these call records, too. And we can see the traffic that the companies are carrying on their network that is indicative of telemarketing fraud, because they're either short calls that aren't being answered, or I won't go into the weeds too much. But there, there's a way to detect from the data what the problematic calls are or the red flags, as Stephen said. So, you know, we just decided we had to take that approach because we weren't going to just bring enforcement actions against companies making these calls from over overseas. So I think law enforcement has to adapt to the times and look at technology and other approaches. And also, uh, just to draw out this point, um, in that regulatory ecosystem that you just described, you can't just have the agencies working in silos mm -hmm. or the jurisdictions working in silos. You need regulatory networks so that the AG's offices are talking not just to the FTC, where that role came from initially, but also to the FCC, because now that's where that's where the action can make a difference. Right, and that can be hard to do sometimes, but ideally that's what's, that's what's happening, yeah. And that's also, I would argue, what I saw during my terms as being the most effective. So while the states, you know, initially, um, even before the bubble burst in the housing market, you know, where we were already identifying these really toxic subprime loans and the impact they were having, um, because the, all the federal regulators were pushing back against us, and we were, you know, they were trying to preempt us from even doing enforcement actions um, against federal lenders. It was really challenging, and it wasn't until the crash itself and a change in administration where finally it wasn't just a bipartisan group of state attorneys general, but it was DOJ and Treasury and everybody, you know, HUD, 
uh, we were all at the table. And once it was all of us against the people who had allowed this to happen in the first place, um, that was really where we finally got relief for people and really made some significant change. But otherwise, um, we had spent years. Yeah, and as somebody on battle. the defense side of that coordination in the financial crisis, it was much more powerful when the bank that I was representing was not only getting the Department of Justice out of the U.S. Attorney for, the, for uh, New Jersey, the main justice, the SEC in North Carolina, the state of Illinois, and about eight other states in a coordinated set of actions, and trying to keep that chessboard going until the point when you went, there's no way we're going to win all of this, and we need to find a way to package a settlement and then go and coordinate. They were coordinated on their side enough that we were able to relatively efficiently work out a package that got real meaningful money, both to the, to the governments, but also for the cost of the investigation and otherwise, but also back to consumers mm -hmm. um, in a settlement that was dramatic. But, but one point I'd like to build on is I think the data piece, we're just on the cusp, at least that's my sense on the defense side, of, of a way that data can be helpful in a forward-looking sense, not just capturing the fraud that they know about, right? So you're running data on a fraud that you've seen at a company to see if other companies are doing the same thing. But, you know, the SEC is using big data to look across financial statements to figure out on those elements of the statements that people can manipulate, honestly, like reserve levels where there is judgment exercise, right? Are there companies that are exercising that judgment in ways that suggest that they're doing that to manipulate earnings, right? So that's sort of forward-looking, trying to identify some of the problems that might be coming up. And, it, it, you know, particularly if the market starts heading down and people are trying to make their numbers, and just the fact that people know that a regulator is doing some of this has a deterrent effect, but I think it also helps people think about regulation in a more thoughtful forward-looking way, not just reacting to the last problem. And so, so we have a question here that um, gets at also the distinction between symptoms and causes. So we've talked about a lot of causes today for the situation that we're confronting right now, globalization, the transformation of information technology, uh, financial engineering, a number of things have come up. Uh, this question is, is wondering whether we should also be addressing the question of the dramatic increase in inequality in the country. And two, and two, and we've heard about this a little bit on the corporate side with the incentives that people are now uh, facing if they're actually running a large corporation with stock options and, and what, what, what that can bring to their own uh, personal balance sheets. But then there's the other side of it, the degree to which uh, half the country is living paycheck to paycheck and the kinds of stresses and strains that create for things like, like debt consolidation scams. So I just wonder if, if, if you have any thoughts about that across the panel. And there's another another question here. I want to bring in, in a second. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it's uh, you know, any inequality, race, race, racial inequality, and and um, economic inequality is, is a huge driver of this stuff. Um, and I mean, like, just the the whole subprime mortgage crisis represents a transfer of wealth from low income and moderate income neighborhoods to corporate executives and investors. Um, you know, in the, I don't know, trillions of dollars. I don't, I'm not good with numbers or whatever, but, um, and the victims of fraud typically tend to be, I mean, you know, we can talk about, I guess, securities may be a different 
category, but but in you know garden variety consumer fraud, both corporate and individual, the victims are always lower income people. Um, and elderly. And, uh, yeah, well, elderly, lower income people, you know, um, immigrants, people under under um, educated, you know, less educated people, um, which is a huge portion of our population. In the corporate context, when they interview people who did, you know, defraud the company, uh, two of the reasons they give most frequently are, uh, number one, the company can afford it anyhow, they're so rich, so they'll never notice. And then number two, and all those executives are making so much more money than everyone else, we deserve we deserve some too. So, I mean, th this just goes on all the time. Yeah. And, you know, part, part of, you know, I, I should write the MBA curriculum, part of the training would be, Paying a living wage is a good investment in your company, so you don't have all this crap. It's not it's not terrible, and, and some companies that have done it, you know, have done okay. I mean, then I've heard people argue, well, then why is you know, Starbucks you know, having unionization problems and stuff like that? You know, that that's not the point here. But people are motivated to to punish the, their employer if they think they're being treated unfairly. Yeah, I think that's that's a good point because yeah, and across the board, it's because because everybody tells little white lies, and you know we justify you know on whatever level we're being deceptive, you know, in our personal lives and our financial lives or whatever, you know, you justify like they won't uh, you know the right. boss is making so much more money than I am, so underpaid, I deserve to, you know, steal right. from the till or whatever. Um, but back so if you know if we have more income equality or less income inequality, um, you know, maybe that's partial, uh, you know, we'll partially address the problem. So I wanted to build on, on what you all are saying and something that Kevin said earlier. So when we would receive consumer fraud complaints into the Illinois Attorney General's office, and most AG offices across the country take in a very large volume of consumer fraud complaints. And Kevin mentioned, you can either you know send those in online, you can still, I think most states, pick up the phone and actually talk to a consumer advocate. Um, I always recognize that we are like the place of last resort, right? Because most people are going to attempt to figure it out on their own. Uh, most people really don't want to talk to government. Uh, so maybe they'll go to the Better Business Bureau um, and oftentimes we found legal aid would get a lot of complaints as well, so we were always working in conjunction with the, those organizations. But you know, we were getting, I mean, Kevin mentioned, what, 30,000 complaints filed. We would be getting 200,000 calls, community emails, written complaints a year. And the vast majority of those people uh, are lower income, um, they're people of color, there are people in the immigrant community, uh, many of whom do not speak English as a first language. They're seniors. And so there's absolutely no question that you know, all of those groups are more preyed upon, which may sound you know, odd, because right with income inequality, you would think that they don't have the type of resources. But for some of these individual scam artists, um, there are plenty of people with enough resources for them to unfortunately earn living. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's counterintuitive in some ways, but one of the things that struck me when I first got involved in consumer protection work was how many scams target poor people. And there's a really good book, I forget, I'm going to mangle the title of it, but it's something like The Poverty of Being Poor or something like that. But it, but it's all about... The poor pay more. That, uh, yeah, um, exactly. That's the concept. And, and it, like the debt settlement 
scam is a classic example of that, where someone is deep in debt. Uh, you know, they don't have a whole lot of money or anything, but then the scam is, oh, I'll get you out of your debt, I'll consolidate all your debt, but just pay me this upfront fee and I'll take care of your problem. And then the people are so desperate, they somehow scrape up the money, probably by getting scammed in another way through a payday loan or something, and then they pay the debt settlement scammer, and, and it just shocks me how many scams target, they'd be targeting, you know, people with more means, but there are tons of scams that target low-income people, and it's just kind of, it shocked me when I first got involved in this. Oh, yeah, and subprime mortgages, and then the cash-out second mortgage, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. Like, you know, all you're doing is building right. debt upon debt upon debt to where these right. people are losing their houses. And, right. And, and all their and the whole payday, well, all of their yeah. modest savings and the whole payday loan industry is just yep. targeted to poor people, right? Oh, I mean, it makes millions of dollars off of desperate poor people. And fortunately, in North Carolina, we've passed really good yeah. laws that have kind of run the payday lenders, at least the brick and mortar ones, out of out of business. But like that is an industry that thrives in a lot of states and just preys on poor people, and That's it's it's terrible. Yeah, well, and I, I recall there was some proposed payday legislation in Illinois, and an advocate, you know, lawyer representing the industry, you know, was like, "Oh, but we help. We're helping." Yeah, people. that's <laughs> you know. And there's a lot of blame the victim. I think I think a lot of a uh, big hurdle in you know at least you know in in my practice you know in the law um, is well, you signed the paper. They all signed the papers. The numbers were all right there. So. So, you know, even if the guy might have, you know, told some lies about it, well, it was all right disclosed there. And if my clients, you know, they don't read, they can't read, um, they're dissuaded from reading um, the documents. And, you know, it's, but, but when you're actually trying to litigate these it's cases, very it's hard. very difficult to overcome that, you know, um, you're supposed to read what you sign before you sign it. Right, and even law Nobody professors does. don't, as we as we heard this morning. <laughs> right, so. even I don't sometimes. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. click here, you know, forward. So it's just another variation. Well, in, in our view in North Carolina, it's a good example of a product that is just so harmful, and I know people disagree, you know, like the people in the industry disagree about this, but, like, we reached a policy conclusion in North Carolina that those lending products were so harmful and they weren't helping anybody. And the description that Roy Cooper, our former AG, used to use is it's like throwing an anvil to someone who's drowning. That's, that's <laughs> what the product is. And, and it's so harmful that the product was just banned, you know, at a certain uh, interest rate in, in North Carolina. At least that's the judgment that, that we came to. The industry will tell you it's kind of the exact same thing. It's like, well, people should be given the choice. And if we just disclose everything, they agree to it, you know, fine. but. In our view, those particular products are so harmful, they just needed to be banned. And that's the current state of the law in North Carolina. So, so we have another question, uh, which gets again at this issue of how to think holistically across maybe a whole of government approach to, this, to, to the where fraud uh, as a problem fits in. So the question is, do you think with this newest wave of ESG-type reforms, fraud will decrease? Or does fraud appear to be uncoupled from these corporate responsibility initiatives? And I, I would just add as a, a coda to that, of course, to report on ESG initiatives raises the question of whether you can trust the accuracy of the claims. So this is a little bit like what we heard earlier about a move to, to, medic, to, a, to healthcare reimbursement that's based on patient outcomes. Well, if you're reporting patient outcomes, is that accurate? And what do you do uh, around that issue? 
So thoughts about ESG requirements? Well, it's, it's sort of within my area of practice, and um, unlike a lot of my colleagues, I'm a big skeptic on ESG requirements. Right now, they're too murky, and there are too, too many different ones floating around there. I, I, don't, I don't understand why the SEC is getting involved with environment, but they've, they've made that decision. I, I, I think it's, it, it's, I don't think it's going to help at all in terms of um, because it's really not aimed there. It's aimed at perhaps disclosure of the goodness of the company to investors. Okay, that's a good thing, but you know it's not going to help on fraud as far as I'm concerned because it does nothing. It doesn't mandate that they have a system of internal controls. They they talk about governance, but you know it's it to what standards? Um, I'm uh, you know so I'm I'm a skeptic on this. A lot of people are very enthusiastic about it, but. Uh, I think there's a long way to go. Uh, you know, there's a Europe, European has standards, different organizations in the United States have standards. It's, you, know, you don't know where we're at. And then there's a political component in some states where they're opposing it for, for political reasons. So the answer, that was my long answer. The short answer is no. And my short answer <laughs> is I love it as a big firm partner who gets a share of the firm's earnings because it is making a ton of money yeah. and it does absolutely none. It's like meaningless window dressing. It is the worst of government regulation in my view because it accomplishes nothing of substance. It makes the people who enact it feel good and pat on themselves on the back. We have real societal problems around those sets of issues. And all this does is, as, as you said, you know, let people put a puff piece <laughs> basically in their disclosures and and find a way to 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 navigate it yeah. using high paid lawyers or not so high paid lawyers sometimes. But it's it's really, you know, it's an example of like so many of places where regulation just isn't working and, and I'm a progressive Democrat. <laughs> I there are just areas where we gotta do better. So can we talk about, because what I found to be really an interesting theme from the first panel now to our panel is, well, what is effective when it comes to contending with fraud? Because the first panel of scholars, right, there was some commentary about, well, look, there have certainly been periods of time in history where there has been no fraud enforcement, and that whole laissez-faire didn't work well. Uh, others who said consumer education doesn't work. Give, it, give up, it's not worth the time and effort and that's not gonna make a difference. I mean, from my perspective, it has to be kind of this full complement um, of, of pieces where you have regulators who are doing investigations, enforcement actions, hopefully as a deterrent, but also to make people whole again. You have to do education. And I would say, not just trying to get at adults uh, whose time is very difficult to get, but you know, I always felt like in school, we never learned the things we really needed to learn for our lives, right? We didn't learn uh, necessarily about finances. We didn't learn personal finances. We didn't learn about relationships. We don't learn about health enough. So it's gotta be a component from when people are young so they have some understanding of the choices they're gonna need to make to be financially stable. And then we also need to obviously work on policy changes. 
right, you know, effective ones, uh, so that we have laws in place and we do, ha as government regulators, have a way to make sure uh, that people are, you know, they know what the rules are, uh, they are actually playing within those rules, and if they're not, then we have the ability to come in and do those investigations and those enforcement actions. But I'm curious as to what other people think. I, I totally agree <laughs> that holistic approach and thinking about it that way, getting as many actors involved as possible makes sense. Um, yeah, totally agree with all that. I mean, I think, um, I think we're gonna have to grapple like with the issue of disclosures going forward and what that means in an era where everything is technology oriented and the disclosures which were always hard to deal with, like even in a print ad, you know, like you had a print ad and the gist of it was saying the product is free and then in the mice type at the bottom, it caveats that, like that's always been a bit of a tough issue for consumer protection people and it's like the caveat in the fine print, is that enough to, you know, qualify the overall misleading disclosure in the body of the ad, but with technology, you know, it, it's, it's so hard for people to make choices and, and navigate the disclosures and everything. I mean, I, you know, there are a lot of law students out there and this is maybe an issue for them to grapple with going forward, but it's like, are you, are you okay with a world like that where it's just very difficult to make choices when you sign up for your cell phone service and you click on a button and you've agreed to all this stuff and it's mandatory arbitration and it's, you only have a choice of three cell phone companies, so you can't really shop around a whole lot. And I'm digressing a little bit from, but I think, you know, I think the notion is there are a lot of issues like that that are gonna be difficult for an individual state or a federal agency to deal with on an enforcement level. You know, like the issue of, you know, kind of dark patterns and how difficult it is for some people to cancel their service these days and how it's so much easier to you sign up for a service by clicking a button you know online but then to cancel you've got to be on the phone with somebody for six hours like is that a is that fraud is that deception you know do we need do we need it seems unfair but like do we need a new, a new rule for that i mean you know a lot of it, it's the consumer it. equivalent of constructive eviction yeah so yeah. let's think yeah. of something that could be done there yeah, I think there are areas where government, you know, we, we've all been jumping all over the problems, but I think there are areas where government has done some things that ha I think are doing better. And an example of that is a few years ago, the Department of Justice and the SEC, which jointly enforced the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the Foreign Bribery Statute, got together and put a handbook together so that companies, the compliance people inside companies and the outside council representing companies know not just the words of the statute, not just what we've fought about with the staff over the years, but, but how to, you know, how they're thinking about these issues. And there are very hard issues around what constitutes foreign bribery, not on buckets full of money, but in normal corporate transactions. And, and also then with avenues for legitimate questions to be asked of the right people in the right way and get an answer quickly enough. The Office of the Chief Accountant at the SEC does a good job of this as well, where sometimes you just need to know the answer. 
and you're not trying to commit fraud, but you don't know what you're supposed to be doing. And I think in the FCPA context, I do think that's helped companies be more compliant. The companies that care about compliance, there's still a massive problem because there's still a sense on the enforcement side that it is Russian roulette, right? And only there are like 87 chambers in one bullet. And so, or 8,000 chambers in one bullet that everybody's paying bribes in China, everybody's paying bribes in other places in the world. And, you know, unless you do that one bullet out of the 8,000, you're gonna be going fine and you're gonna grab market share because you're paying the bribe. You know, I think it's interesting that it's the fraud division of the OJ that has taken the lead in providing a lot of this right. guidance about what companies should do. Um, and, you know, I don't know if that's broadly significant for purposes of this program, but um, they have issued, uh, you know, compliance guidance, uh, uh, taking the lead in that area, which, which have been very helpful documents for companies that want to do the right thing. And they want, they want to, you know, tell us what you want. And uh, we're seeing that. So, so, so I, oh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree in a holistic approach, and I mean, I, I like those kind of the idea of like compliance um, messages um, because that also set the standard of practice mm -hmm. that if they deviate from that, you know, I can say, well, look, you know, look, the, I wouldn't be the SEC, it wouldn't be the SEC in my cases, but some the AG says this is how you're supposed to deal with a home repair contract, you know, and if they didn't do that, um, that demonstrates. A problem, but and I also just wanted to also mention that I don't think disclosure works at all. And I and I've seen cases where disclosure is actually part of the fraud, where they they have a, a purported disclosure that says you know you realize you're buying a rebuilt rack, you know, and then the car dealer argues, well look they see that we told them, but what they actually told the customers, no 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 this is just one of those forms everybody everybody signs with every car. Mm -hmm. You know one thing I think about in terms of like in terms of going to the problem of like how does this grow or what can we do to educate people is thinking more about this concept of financial literacy. That's something that's become a lot more common. People talk about that a lot. I think that's something that some schools teach nowadays. And like, I think that's something that's really important because I've dealt with many fraud victims and it's, I keep, you know, this, it's the phrase that comes up, like if it sounded, what things that sound too good to be true probably are. And unfortunately, as a lawyer, I've said that far more often to people who, for whom it was already too late. And it'd be better if people were got that lesson early on, uh, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, when you're growing up, because that's the kind of thing that like, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing that might protect you from getting caught up in some of these scams. So l let me follow up with that because I happen to have brought in some show and tell today, but uh, <laughs> illustrating that principle. So this, this is a fruit feeder shaft scraper from, from a food plant. Um, and it's made out of stainless steel because things have to be very clean if, if you're doing food things with them. And so in my first year as a lawyer, um, this was the problem I was handled. What we saw was a, a scheme where fraudsters would go to food plants on the third shift and ask to talk to the maintenance supervisor and they say, do you have any worn metal parts? Uh, we have a new process where we can re-metalize uh, stainless steel parts for only $100 or $200. Now, this was headed for the scrap pile because normally re-metalizing a worn stainless steel part is not economic. You can't do it. And so lesson number one, it sounded too good to be true. It was. So these guys had a scheme. What they would do is they would 
go to someone on the third shift who you know, had some authority but not much and say, okay, fine. So he gave them uh, five pieces like this and say, okay, that's in my budget. It'll cost me you know, eight or 900 bucks. I can do that. And then a couple weeks later, sent them back with a bill for $20,000. Um, and they said, oh no, you understood. It's $200 per coat and we had to put on you know, 10 coats or whatever. So, um, and so initially we too afraid to report this. Okay, so that was point number two. People have to have confidence in their corporate reporting system that if there is a problem, they'll talk. You know, you should have asked first. Listen. But anyhow, part of their scam was they had a law firm that followed them around, and they went around the country, who would then threaten to sue. And the interesting thing is, when, when they threatened to sue, and, and listen, I'm you know less than a year out of law school, and this is handed to me, and I'm asking Bill, does this happen all the time? No, 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 no. But you can figure it out, Ted. It's okay. So they refused to sue, and the, the lawyer said, well, gee, let's settle. You know, how about a thousand dollars? So, you know, you know Kraft is a company that had a big lab. So we were able to do some testing of the product. That they did nothing to it. They cleaned it, and that was it. So we said, no, you did nothing. We're not paying any. I said, oh, come on, you know, give us, give us some money for our troubles. That was how they did it. If anyone pushed back, they would um, they'd try and get some money. So the, the upshot of it increased the controls on who can sign orders for anything and educate people if you're offered something, you know, in Chicago, we'd say it fell off a truck, you know? Uh, if it's cheap, cheaper than it should be, it shouldn't be. So now, so that, was, that was my first moment of corporate fraud. I had to work it in here somewhere. <laughs> so, so we've got a few questions that I want to get to. Um, we've, we've heard about the uh, value of uh, guideline, guidance, whether that's in the guidebook, handbook, or whether it might be in uh, some new uh, rules adopted by the FCC. One question is about the dynamic going on right now with the American Law Institute of restating consumer contracts. And whether, uh, so the, the question is about whether, uh, what you think the outcome there is, could that possibly even codify in law permission for companies to commit fraud, I suppose through even more contracts of adhesion? I mean, go ahead. No, because I don't, I'm not sure, I don't know what this, the change is, so. I mean, I. I one thing I would say generally just about guidance, and this is kind of from my biased law enforcement standpoint, is that it, it I understand how it can be useful sometimes and everything. It, it can be tricky for law enforcement because what you don't want to do is provide safe harbors for corporations and everything. So like sometimes we are reluctant to provide written guidance because we know it can be used against us by good lawyers like Chuck in a in a case we might bring against one of his clients. And so, um, I, you know, on, on the other hand, I do think that that I, I, I see the value in it and everything. In terms of my stuff, I mean, personally, as, as a practical guy, I'd rather see law, actual laws move forward because I think to get changes through AI takes a long time. And then for those to translate into actual changes to laws will take even longer. So I certainly think the law regarding contracts from a consumer standpoint needs to be changed and reformed in some way. So it's not all just about a consumer signs an adhesion contract and that's the end of the analysis, which is where we are in a lot of cases these days. I do think 
looking at contracts in a different way going forward because we all know the reality people don't read them and they click on so like if if we all know they don't read them and understand them then why is that have so much meaning so i think that framework needs to be changed but not sure of the best lens to do it necessarily maybe one other quick comment on this and then i want to get to one more question before we close anyone else want to address this I'd just say ALI is discussed, I think, much more in the law schools, at least it was in the 80s when I was in law school, <laughs> than it is in the real world. <laughs> so I think it's not really relevant much to, especially in a consumer-facing area, I think it's going to be very difficult to use an ALI process to make things better at, in any meaningful period of time. So, so there are two uh, questions left to get to that are related. Um, so the first is, uh, isn't fraud like a balloon? If you squeeze fraud out of one place through effective prevention or regulation, it just pushes the fraudsters into another different fraud. So the regulators are always playing catch up with the last fraud, so is there any solution? And then the second question is, uh, connect, well, I would say, you know, connected. So uh, isn't it the case that the whole terrain is now just more complex? and one in which you have massively powerful institutions like the largest banks with incredible uh, capacity, not only to diffuse responsibility in operations, uh, so picking jurisdictions and forum shopping, uh, but also being able to just overpower any regulatory body or a prosecutor with endless discovery delays Okay, I have to talk to this one. <laughs> As somebody who represents banks regularly, um, I think there are people, and probably people in this room, who think the banks didn't suffer enough consequences from the financial crisis. And there are probably, you know, sure, Jamie Dimon's doing just fine. But, but the people who work day to day in these banks, many of them, and the people who work the closest to these issues, who were not just junior level people, but were relatively senior bankers they lost their jobs they've spent they spent literally i mean I, there was one woman who i probably defended in 20 depositions who was a head of due diligence at a bank and her life was destroyed i mean she was near suicidal right um this is not something where the, the consequences of a massive situation like that. It's easy to glibly go, Mozilla got off, which Lisa pointed out. And Mozilla should have been criminally convicted somewhere. I mean, he's a, he's a crook, right? And we all can sit here and know he's a crook. But the fact is, there were real consequences institutionally and individually for many, many people in the large banks as a result of the of the financial crisis. So yeah, there's still a bank called Bank of America. There's still a, a Merrill Lynch. Merrill Lynch is no longer Merrill Lynch the way it was before the financial crisis, right? Merrill Lynch now, if you see a Bank of America TV ad, it is Bank of America Merrill Lynch. I mean, Merrill Lynch in 2008, 2009, never would have wanted to be branded as Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Um, there are real consequences both to the institutions and the people, and I think we underestimate those because we focus on 
the Angela Mozillos of the world, senior management at Purdue Pharma, who who did largely get off. And but um, you know, I think there's a little bit of interest in that. I think the reputational and other consequences are more meaningful than maybe we think when we're not dealing with these people day to day. I was going to say um, because I think your question was right. Are these banks, for instance, um, or other very large players so powerful that no regulator can do anything about, uh, you know, fraud that they may be committing? I, I would say no. Uh, look, in the aftermath of the financial crisis we put in place with a large fight, and AGs were part of this, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Uh, and I can tell you that there are you know, no banks who enjoy uh, having to contend with Director Chopra. Uh, and the enforcement mechanisms that they have at the CFPB. Uh, I think that's true also with state AGs, as we've talked about, and it's true with DOJ. Um, all of these, not just banks, but you know, large corporations, uh, they don't want to have a CID or a subpoena show up. Uh, they don't want to have to do those, go through those investigations uh, and have those conversations with the regulators and, and the enforcers. And, and they take them very seriously. Um, so yes, there are still very effective mechanisms uh, to go after fraud. Uh, it's really a matter of making sure that you know, we're finding it in a timely manner, hopefully to prevent another financial crisis. And, you know, that was actually one of the failures that I blame on the feds because they refused to uh, to use powers. Um, but no, I think all of these you know, banks and large corporations recognize the power that the regulators continue to have. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I want to push back a little bit on that because, <laughs> you know, I mean, from my perspective, I, I understand the mighty awesome power of the United States government if you are being prosecuted or investigated. But, um, you know, I think the, the very existence of the CFPB is in question in some of the, you know, the case, what is it, the Fifth Circuit case, Fifth Circuit case that just came out. And the FTC recently, the Supreme Court ruled that they cannot get restitution. So, so at the highest levels, I think industry is winning, you know, in the battle to, to kind of like minimize regulation, at, like at every turn. And every time a, a regulation or a new law is proposed, you know, you have to battle you know, the consumer protection forces have a huge battle just to get anything passed because industry will say, you know, all commerce will grind to a halt if we pass this particular regulation. And we know that's not true because companies will adapt and, and, and the economy will survive. But it's, it's a huge uphill battle. So, so is a prime example of that where my clients would also have said at the beginning, first of all, you know, they all thought Elizabeth Warren was Satan and they thought the CFPB was completely unnecessary because they've got all these other regulators. But the fact is the CFPB has done things to help consumers, particularly in the banking and things like payday lending and other areas that were not done by any other regulator, right? I mean, the Wells Fargo and some of the other enforcement stuff that the CFPB has done very effectively um, is, but, but you're right. So yes, people are trying to narrow the scope of the CFPB's authority, that battle's always going to be there. But Lisa Madigan, as Attorney General of Illinois, got the banks to bend on a lot of things, along with her compatriots in other states. Including um, North Carolina. She, yes. <laughs> so so on, 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 on that note, um, let me just leave you with one thought before thanking the panel for an incredible uh, hour and a half, which is well, two thoughts, actually. So the first is,
um, in this, with this uh, focus on a holistic approach, uh, I'm going to just throw out for the law students, thinking about the interactions between anti-fraud conversations and antitrust conversations. Because if you want actually reputational dynamics to work, you actually need competition. Right. And if you want regulators to have all the tools that may make a difference, people can't be too big to jail or too big regular fail. Uh, been a fantastic conversation to, to end the, 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 the formal part of, of, of the symposium, but the symposium is not over. There is a reception to come where every participant is going to be available for further conversation. Really hope the students take advantage of that. And I want to thank our panelists for a fantastic roundtable.